Welcome to the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors in the commodity space to give you the inside scoop on the emerging commodity super cycle. And now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Commodity Culture, where we break down the commodity space for both new and experienced investors. We are here again at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, and we are blessed to be joined by Lobo Tigre of the Independent Speculator. How are you doing today, Lobo? Having trouble with the word blessed, but okay, all right, we'll, we'll roll with it. Well, we're very happy to see you. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, yesterday at the, com- at the conference, you gave a presentation titled Forget Inevitable or Even Imminent. I'm betting on what's happening now. Could you walk us through the main threads of that talk and any key takeaways you think investors should be paying attention to? Sure. Don't need to get too uh, theoretical here. It's just I get tired of all these theories, these big theories, right? You know, the, the central banks are doing this, therefore... and. And it never seems to make any difference to my investment outcomes. Um, and of course, the forget about the, or don't confuse inevitable with imminent is a Rick Rule saying. And, uh, you know, a common mistake investors get, which touches on the same idea that you, ha- you get convinced of some theory and it's inevitable. This has to happen. You know, the, the dollar has to crash or, the, you know, gold has to go to the moon or silver or whatever. It has to happen. It's inevitable. Doesn't mean it's going to happen during your investment time frame. Um, and so my riff on that, building on Rick's wisdom there, is even the imminent, we can be wrong. There's times where we think the inevitable is now imminent. Oh, it's, it's happening now. It's coming. It's coming. And then, you know, things, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent, is the other saying, right? So I'm tired of that. And so I want happening now. I want to see the trend that I've been looking for or that makes sense to me. I want to see it happening now. I want to see it in motion. I wasn't there early. I didn't beat it, but there's still plenty of time to make money on it because it's happening now. That's the concept. And what's happening right now? Well, the dollar milkshake uh, mechanism has gone into reverse. Dollars down, alternatives up. That includes gold and silver. So I like the gold and silver space for many reasons, but I like it right now. And I'm looking to deploy more cash there. The other one would be uranium. Happening now, I know that the price has gone sideways for some months, and it has some people frustrated. But big picture, it's actually on a sawtooth pattern upwards over five years. It's, it's a really strong pattern. And you've got the fundamentals and the technicals agreeing there. This is happening now. Critically, in my view, the long-term contracting is finally happening now. Um, and the spot price cannot ignore the long-term contract price for long. So I, it's very simple. That's what's happening now. You know, other things, I'm very bullish on copper, yes, but I'm not quite convinced it's happening now. We've had a good couple of months, but we've got a global recession that's, you know, I think it's real. I think it's happening now, and it's just a matter of the recession deniers getting over the soft landing delusion. Um, but that's likely a headwind for copper in everything industrial, oil too. So a lot of interesting things right out there. But for what's happening right now that I'm willing to put money in, like stocks, right now, it's quite simple. Gold, silver, uranium. Just that. Nice. I like that. Um, I want to talk about Fed policy a little bit because I'm a subscriber to your free newsletter, one of the only ones I read bottom to top, by the way. It's a, it's a great uh, piece of content. And you do talk a lot about Fed policy, both the job owning they do and the actual policy that gets implemented and its effect on the market. So my question is, how much should investors be paying attention to those factors? Because people can really get caught up in it. And does Fed policy affect the commodity space differently than the broader market in any way? 
Well, <laughs> in an ideal world, we shouldn't have to pay attention to the Fed at all. It shouldn't be making news. It shouldn't matter. But when you have, you know, the world's largest economy and the world's reserve currency being heavily manipulated and not in a, you know, there's lots of theories and secrets and, and conspiracies and all that stuff. It, maybe some of them are true. I'm not even saying it's not true, but never mind any of that. What they're overtly doing is manipulation, right? Um, and it's so heavily intervened into the economy when you hold interest rates at basically zero for years, as they did, and so on. That's a massive intervention. It, it means that your normal forces of supply and demand, that is what you should as a, as a business person or as an investor be looking at, it becomes second fiddle to this big, powerful driver because the government is intervening and changing the rules on you. So, you know, I'd love to say just ignore the Fed. It doesn't matter. There are a bunch of political hacks appointed. But the reality is that they are intervening in the marketplace. So, of course, we have to watch them. Now, you know, obsessing over whether they change happy for glad and, you know, some of this stuff, it reminds me of the of the oracle readers of thousands of years ago reading, you know, the tea leaves or the entrails or whatever to divine the oracle. And so I think it can, it can get, you can go over the top, right? You can go too far with parsing fed this, that, and the other. You know, look at what they do. Look at what their, uh, you know, objectives are. I, I do think that matters. And right now, so for example, I think it's important that the Fed is guiding and their recent steps have backed that up that they're getting to this pausing point. Long and variable lags, let's see what we've done already does to the economy, and we're getting there. At the same time, we've got other central banks still clamping down. As you and I speak, we just got the shocking news that inflation got worse in Spain instead of getting better. It's just one, one of the countries in the EU, but it's one of these things. That, that's a, it's a signal that the ECB, which has already guided that it's going to be steady at a very high rate of increase for them, 50 BPs, so this is telling us Fed is easing up on the brakes while the Eurozone is still pressing down. And that differential, dollar milkshake reversal, means weak dollar, bullish for alternatives, including monetary metals. So I want to go through commodities, some commodities one by one with you and get your bull thesis and your bear thesis, what you think might derail okay. the, the bull theory. I did this with Rick Rule as well, so I'm very interested to know where you agree and, and where you contrast. And let's start with the precious metals, gold and silver. So the sort of the, the more fundamental, I think, reality is that money printing does matter. And therefore, I'm bullish on monetary metals because of the amount of money printing that has been done, you know, off the charts, off the record books. There's still a lot of pig to work through the Python there. Uh, on the shorter term, you know, that takes long and variable lags. You know, it takes a long time for the pig to work through the, through the Python. And I frankly don't know how long it will take in this case. It's a pretty darn big pig. And it may not even be done. You know, if I'm, if I'm right about the global recession, we may get new monetary and fiscal, remember fiscal as well as monetary policy here. Uh, but in the shorter term, it's been the dollar. It's been, and, and not just the dollar, but it's been the DXY specifically. That seems to be the cue that traders are using, you know, as their futures contracts determine what we mistakenly refer to as the price of gold. Uh, and therefore what we've talked about already. So what can go wrong? Um, suddenly inflation cools in Europe. And, you know, the war goes away and it turns out they've got all kinds of energy stored up that they maybe won't need anymore. 
uh, and unicorns come out and the rainbows come out. Sorry. Um, you're right, you know, but you know, that, that could derail things, right? Suddenly the Eurozone eases up as well and you no longer have that, that advantage over the dollar and the, you know, its alternatives. Um, just one little nuance here would, of course, be silver, my, putting my Darth Silver yes. ma mantle on. Yes. You know, silver has its increasingly powerful industrial side, which you can, we can see it strongly, uh, you know, widening the gold-silver ratio, if you will. Um, and so if there is, if I'm right about the recession, that, while that lasts, or while that's a deepening, I think that can cause silver to underperform gold this year. It's not forever. Don't send me hate mail. I don't hate silver. I love silver. I'm, I'm looking to invest more heavily in silver because on the flip side, I think silver gets the benefit of the monetary boost, the safe haven demand, and the industrial demand because that's not going anywhere. This, you know, the solar panels, the electrification, the green agenda is very bullish for silver. So longer term, farther ahead, win-win, near term, what could make it go wrong? You know, silver could actually take it on the chin quite hard if we see, uh, you know, recession panic hit. Well, let's move on to uranium. Obviously, you mentioned at the top of this interview that you're very bullish there. Um, just hosted a uranium panel. The room was full. It seems like sentiment here at the VRIC is very much in favor of uranium. A lot of people interested in that space. Um, why don't you let us know any, you know, uh, tailwinds that you see here in 2023 that make you bullish and what could derail that thesis? Yeah, it's really quite strong. I mean, some people just go with charts, technicals, and that sawtooth pattern that we're talking about, it is in a strong upward channel that is not violated yet. So for all the hair pulling of people saying, you know, uranium's not doing anything, is the impatience. Um, so I, I like that. The, on the fundamentals, we've got the Japanese restarts, which is our friend Rick Rule's key thing he was looking for, and that's happening. We've got the long-term contracts, which was my key thing that I was looking for, and that's happening. We also have a new end user, and I don't just mean SPUT. Those SPUT hoovering up the cheap pounds on the market last year, I think, was a game changer. Like, instead of having a few pounds come out and then whack the price again, if that's not there anymore, they're not on the table, then you have, I think, a more real price discovery. And that's material and beneficial to this market. But the, the new customer, the new end user, end user, um, is the United States government with the new uranium reserve. That's significant. It's not the biggest buyer in the world, but it's a buyer that didn't even exist before. And other buyers, you know, if, if you're China building new reactors, it, even China with their breakneck speed of construction, it still takes years to build these things. So it's not something that brings on, you know, instant demand now. Whereas the United States government doing nothing, well, besides the military that's not disclosed, to suddenly becoming a sequesterer of uranium pounds that are no longer on the market, that's a sudden change. It's, and I think that's very significant. So, and then there's just, the, you know, the fact that mine supply hasn't been enough for years. So it's not just, uh, oh, well, there was low prices, so they banked the, the flames. And that's true. It's a little bit OPEC-ish in that way. But even if Cameco and Kazatomprom, the big producers, they go full bore, it's still not enough. It was only enough before because there was secondary supply coming to the market. And that's no longer on the table, at least not the way it was before. So basically, everything that I can think of looks fantastic for the uranium. What's, what's the, the bear case? 
Well, obviously, the big one is a major nuclear incident, right? You know, I don't know if it's uh, Zaporizhia, if, if the Russians doing something crazy and there's a major Chernobyl-type thing. Though, actually, you know, because they know that the risk is there, I don't think even if they have a reactor building breach there, you know, they, they shell the actual, you know, reactor buildings, I don't think it would be a Chernobyl-type event. It would be bad, don't get me wrong, but it wouldn't be a Chernobyl-type event. But anyway, a nuclear disaster that that really puts a, a skidding halt to the nuclear renaissance that we're seeing now would be a game changer. I don't expect that. That, that would be, you know, these things are very, very few and far between. Arguably, there's really only been one. Because Three Mile Island was really a big scare over nothing much. And Fukushima, it was a tsunami. And, you know, the location of the backup generators, that's, that's not an issue. And even, even that was not really, you know, the people who were killed were killed by the tsunami. It wasn't really a nuclear incident. It was just a, a bolt-on unfortunate situation there. Whereas Chernobyl was a full-on nuclear accident. Right. So really, there's only been one major nuclear disaster in the world, which is a pretty good track record. So I don't expect this. But you have to understand that if you're going to invest in uranium, this is a it's, a, it's a trade that can literally blow up on you. you know, these investments can basically go to zero before you can hit the bid. So you must understand uh, that it is a speculation. And you should take profits as you go to make sure that you, can, you don't get hurt. Uh, other than that, not a lot. I would just say, you know, nuclear energy is energy. The energy sector, uh, you know, that typically, you know, goes into reverse when there is a recession that's acknowledged and so on. So there's potentially a headwind for uranium when, if I'm right, about the global recession. But I'm, you know, the story is out there. Like, people get that there's a difference between baseload power. Like, part of why there's a nuclear renaissance is because the sun doesn't shine at night, the wind doesn't blow all the time, and people are realizing that you really need 24-7 baseload power, and yeah. you don't want to burn coal. Or they don't. Or, you know, so people understand that. And so if you have a, a, an economic downturn, people may not drive to grandma's as often or something like that, so that's bad for oil and so on. But you still want the lights to come on. You still want power for your hospitals and that sort of thing, which is what, that's, you know, uranium's sweet spot. So I, I don't think it's a given, actually, that uranium in that sector has to take quite the beating that you might think in an economic downturn. And especially if those long-term contracts we're talking about, you know, put a floor under it. Then I'm not saying it's immune to recession, but I am saying I, I, I see it outperforming the rest of the energy sector, even if there is a serious global recession. Do you have any thoughts on lithium at all? Because, um, you know, it's been trending quite a bit. Last year, obviously, we saw big spikes in the lithium carbonate price um, a couple times before returning down to nonetheless hovering now around those initial all-time highs at the beginning. I think it was March of 2022. Um, where do you see lithium position now? Because I feel like so much of the story is around this EV revolution. We're going to transform the whole vehicle fleet into EVs. And I just don't know that that's going to happen like the, the political elite thinks it is. So what, what are your thoughts on lithium? What, what could go right and what could go wrong? Well, you know, clearly reality does matter. And it's, it's just not going to be possible to go all electric in the time frame that the powers that be the Davos types want, you know, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. <laughs> and, or rather that the trend 
isn't going to continue there. And yes, you know, for things like nickel or even copper, which are major industrial commodities that have, you know, huge consumption in other areas, this is an additional source of new demand on top. Right. But that, so even if it goes away completely, that doesn't mean that you don't need it anymore. Lithium, there are other uses, but it's, I mean, how much lithium is there in a pill that you take? <laughs> Not a lot. You know, lithium used as a lubricant or other things, it's, it's much smaller. So the EV story is much more impactful for lithium. And we're actually about to publish a new research paper on this because it turns out it's pretty complicated. You've got the hydroxide, you've got the carbonate, the price is carbonate equivalent, but the markets are actually not quite the same. And the mines are not the same. The processing is not all off the shelf. You know, what seemed to work in this mine doesn't in that one. It turns out to be pretty complicated. Um, but the, the short version, a little bit of sneak peek for the for this forthcoming study. It'll be a free download on our website when we get it up there, maybe within a week or so. Um, but basically, the supply and demand, depending on some definitions, it's really tight for the next few years. Uh, other things being equal. It's not a huge deficit. It's not a huge surplus. It's really tight. Um, so that should keep prices elevated. Now, if the global economic recession pulls back auto sales, and particularly EVs, you know, if they're more expensive and that becomes something that people want to maybe put off buying or something, uh, you could then actually see that the, the supply exceeds demand this year and next year. I mean, and that would be very bad for lithium prices if that happens. The recession scenarios make a huge difference to this particular metal market like now <laughs> and going forward. So this is a big deal. Uh, longer term down the road, uh, you know, lithium is not rare. And there's a lot of that out there, a lot of known resources that could come on. You know, high prices, I think, eventually cure high prices, but it becomes very difficult to say. And the permitting is difficult. And um, so lots of questions. We'll, we'll have to see. But my, my gut for right now is I would be very cautious about piling into the lithium bandwagon until we see how bad this recession hits the demand. So, Dr. Copper, I know you're uh, bullish long-term, but you've mentioned before, as you do in your newsletter, uh, that fears of a looming recession or perhaps one that we're already in, you think could bring about demand destruction in the short term. But yeah. Actually, no, no, not that... quite. Okay. It's more like the traders. Yeah. The, you know, the LME guys and so on, they say, oh, no, a recession, and the price will go down, even if the demand is still there. Like, it's, it's a very bizarre thing how metals prices are often in absolute contradiction to the facts of the sector. There, I mean, back in the 90s, copper in particular was the poster child of just insane market pricing, where the cost of production was 90 plus cents on average. And copper prices stayed for years, not just a month, or, or it wasn't like oil when it went negative 35, you know, for a day. Right. For, for years, copper prices were around 70 cents when the cost of production was 90 cents. Like, how is that even possible? Well, that's because they're, you know, the traders, the, the stocks, the, the market is more complicated than just here's the mine. Um, so the, the good news is my bookcase here is actually very strong. I'm more bullish longer term on copper than I am uranium or just about anything else. The, the structural supply constraints here are much more difficult than for lithium or anything else. Like We know there's some large deposits out there, 
But the ones that are not already en route are pretty low grade. So they need higher prices to come online. And we may have that. We may, you know, some of these famous land bank plays that have, you know, been there forever, some of those might actually go into production this time around. But then you also have the permitting. It, the, to be a, a copper mine big enough to matter, I mean, there are little high-grade ones, and that's fine, but that not, that's not going to really do much for the market. We're talking these big, giant, mega-pit projects. And those are getting harder and harder to permit anywhere. The not-in-my-backyard thinking is just rampant in North America, and the uh, the moral high ground has been given to photogenic local populations, and I'm not trying to dismiss any historic grievances or anything like that, but, but the fact is still that this has become a major impediment to permitting, and even after permitting, to operations. We're seeing it now in major, you know, Chile and Peru and all up and down uh, all of Latin America, really. If, if the locals don't want the mine, you know, nobody wants to be the president that sends in the military to shoot cute locals in their, you know, traditional garb and so on. It's just a really, really difficult uh, situation. So, but even if that wasn't happening, the years that it takes to permit and develop one of these mega mines, I mean, it just, I'm, I'm just so bullish on the whole copper space. But back to the question, you know, if the recession deniers suddenly wake up and smell the napalm. Oh my gosh, we're in a global recession. The copper price will still take a hit. And since I do expect that, I, I do expect people to recognize the global recession that we're in and it is deepening. Then, you know, why, why do I want to buy something when I might be able to buy the exact same thing for 50% off if I can wait a little bit? And if I'm wrong and I don't get that opportunity, it's not like the ship's going to leave. I'm never going to be able to benefit. What I'm, I mean, think about what I'm saying. I'm saying that copper is a is a multi-decade bull market. Plenty of time to make money. No need to rush ahead and stick my hand in the grinder ahead. You know, I can see the grinder. I can see the, that recession scare uh, putting the clamps on anything industrial. And by the way, the, the case for oil is somewhat similar, except that I think oil yeah, does... That was what I was the next one, okay. Actually, yeah. All right, so oil is like that in, in that supply constraints and the demand is still there. Um, Eventually, I do think the green agenda does make the internal combustion engine go away. You know, it's not going to be by 2030, though there will be substantial change by then. By 2040, it might be gone. I mean, at some point, even if people aren't ready to be done with, with their gas guzzlers, there's just not enough of them to, to justify the global infrastructure of supplying gas and diesel products to cars. You know, you, you know to have a, a nationwide chain of gas stations... It's not good enough if only 15% of the people are driving gas cars. So, so at some point, actually, it goes to zero immediately. Like, it just, it becomes unviable to provide that product anymore. So it doesn't just, like, gradually taper off forever. It, it goes down and down, and at some point, it just stops. I'm not saying that's 2040. I'm just saying, I think this is coming. The powers that be have anointed and, and declared it will be so. Right or wrong, this is the way the world is headed. But that, but the capital is being choked off now. Even, you know, Biden's saying pump more, pump more, but he's not making the permitting any easier, right? And nobody wants to build a refinery that's going to take decades to amortize if the governments are trying to shut down the consumption within a, a decade, right? So, so actually, I'm very bullish on oil for some time until we stop burning the stuff. It's going to be, you know, the very 
the very effort to crush oil is going to make it more valuable for a time. Doesn't mean it won't get whacked when the recession denial gives in to panic. Right. And is there any uh, commodity that I haven't covered that you think maybe presents an opportunity right now that isn't on a lot of people's radars? Well, if I can <laughs> be the professional rain on the prey that I so often am, I don't yeah. have a, a hot commodity to recommend, but I'll, I'll go there and piss off some people and say, you know, beware of the platinum bulls and the palladium bulls. You know, there's, there's people who are saying, oh, well, palladium got so expensive, the platinum's going to be resubstituted and platinum is cheaper than gold, so it has to go up. It's oversold. The problem with that argument is I've heard that for years, and it just hasn't delivered for platinum speculation. Well, platinum did okay last year, but it wasn't you know the big breakout. Platinum is still cheaper than gold. So I think the use case for platinum has changed. People lump it in with precious metals, which is why I never use the term. I always use monetary metals, and that's only gold and silver. Platinum is not money. It's never really been used as money. Only somebody like Krugman could think of using it as money because nobody even knows what it looks like. It's just a silvery metal, right? Um, so I, I just, sorry, but I'm not a platinum bull, and I'm warning people to beware of the hype on the platinum front. Uh, and palladium and platinum both, I think the use case is changing. The EVs, yes, it might take 20, 30, 20, 40, whatever, but the demand is already being impacted. Palladium has rolled over. It's now cheaper than gold again. It might spike up briefly, but actually I think it goes back to his historic averages. These are industrial metals. So if you're cautious about industrial metals, don't be confused about expensive metals that are not monetary metals. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Lobo. For those who want to hear more from you, could you uh, let us know about the independent speculator? Lots to say. Just quickly, I would say I have a free weekly digest that you subscribe to. If you, you, can, you can assure the people, if you subscribe, I will not flood you with spam. I hate that stuff. I'm not going to clog your inbox with that 100 advertisements a day. I don't do that. You get one email a week. It's free. I share my insights on the markets. And there's a gentle, polite invitation to become a paying client if you're interested in more. Well, thank you so much, Lobo. Look forward to having you on again and continuing the conversation. All right. Thank you. Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes.